All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Or, of course, if this is your first time here, welcome. Thanks for joining us. We've got a most excellent episode for you today. First, I'm going to uh, introduce a segment of an interview I did with Martha Ha and John DeChapel of Medtronic. It's from our Medtronic Talks podcast series. Again, this is just an excerpt. I just want to uh, share what was part of an important conversation. I spoke with Martha and John about the work that's going on within Medtronic to uh, encourage employees of Asian and Pacific Island descent to uh, really advocate for themselves and to find a way uh, to succeed in the corporation. It's, uh, I think, an important message. And uh, if you want to hear the entire episode, please look for the Medtronic Talks podcast on the podcast channel that you're listening to this podcast on. Or if you're on the website, devicetalks.com, listening to this, you can find Medtronic Talks there as well. But uh, again, I wanted to share at least a a bit of that conversation. And uh, you can find the rest at Medtronic Talks. Later on, I'll speak with... With Josh Macauer. Everyone knows Josh, or I think most people do. He is uh, an innovator extraordinaire. He is going to be taking over at Stanford Biodesign, an effort he helped co-found with Paul Yock back in the 90s. Paul Yock is retiring. Uh, uh, Josh is moving in to take over as director, and it seems like a, a perfect fit for someone who has spent his life uh, just, just creating wonderful medical devices, but also teaching others to innovate, teaching others to create medical devices and developing a system. Uh, and Josh explains why developing a system was was important to him. So it was a, a fun conversation. Josh uh, has some interesting uh, roots or, or, or an, an interesting origin story, I'll say, into MedTech. He'll share what inspired him, what inspired him initially to enter the sector. And uh, it's a bit of a visual conversation. I'll try to share some of the images on social media. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So this is a great conversation. Thanks for uh, thanks for pushing play and for, for joining us. Now I'd like to bring in my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker, welcome back. Good to be here, Tom. Good to be here, man. Here we are. Godzilla and I missed you, Chris, didn't we, Godzilla? Aww. I mean, Sean probably had a good time with Godzilla, though, right? Uh, Sean, Godzilla was a little shy. He didn't come out for Sean, but Sean did a great job. Oh, Sean, Sean is a star in the, in the making. He's, he's more than ready to, to take over for us once we're, well, you know, what happens yeah. to old people like us. So We win. That's we- right. <laughs> <laughs> we win. <laughs> We're the big winners. That's so I got right. some big, big news, Chris. I know all of our podcast wow. listeners want to hear this. this you is won a, very, a million bucks. Very yes. important announcement. I did not win the Ohio <laughs> vaccine. I, I heard. I learned I was ineligible because I don't live in Ohio. Yeah, that'd be tough. Doesn't yeah. seem fair. Yeah, but uh, I found my car keys. You did. I Congratulations. did. Congratulations. There they are, right here. Wow. Yeah, they're in my brown shorts all along. <laughs> You know, it was a hot day. I'd uh, forgotten, and I put it back up on the short shelf, and then I pulled the shorts down again a couple of days ago. <laughs> boom! Keys. Just like that. Just like that. But now I've got my Apple AirTag on it, so that shot's happened again, my friend. Now yeah. I'll be able to beep that into Discovery, so uh, all is good. I've got I've got to get one of those. I've had, I've had my moments where, like, I have a lot of things to do, and all of a sudden I can't find my keys. That's... Just the worst. They, they come in packs it's of four, not, so there's one good. for every every new marker. You can. Uh, Could you send me one, Tom? <laughs> ours have all been claimed. Please. Three by me, one by my oldest son. They've all been acclaimed already. But uh, all right, let us. You've got a, a, a humdinger of a new marker's newsmaker. So let's get started on number one. five. Got a good one. You know, number five uh, ran in full on our, our sister site, Drug Discovery and Development. And, uh, you know, this, it's just, this is just an interesting story. I mean, the, the Wall Street Journal uh, you know, kind of, you know, broke the news and other media outlets followed that there was, was you know, an, a previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence report that uh, revealed that there were three scientists in the, uh, in the Wuhan lab. Uh, the Wuhan Institute of Viro- Virology became sick enough in november 2019 to, to seek hospital care so um 
interesting circumstances and you know and um it's interesting too that uh you know none other than scott gottlieb the the former fda administrator saying you know i, I think there's a lot of uh circumstantial evidence around this but yeah, no, that certainly does add, add credence. And I think now is the time for us to really start pushing and delving into this this origin story. I mean, obviously, others are, other countries are still very much struggling with the virus, and we should help them through that. But uh, but now is the time to definitely uh, dig a little deeper and find out what the story is behind there, because there are some, some gaps, right? Some questions? Yeah, you know, and it's good to find out, like, where exactly this came from so that we can uh, prevent this from happening again, since this was uh, probably... Uh, this was hopefully the, uh, the the past year was hopefully the, the one of the toughest years in history that I've lived through. So, um, yeah, it'd be nice for it not to happen again. So we've got and, and I, I've you know been reading news reports, too, that, you know, President Biden you know says that he wants intelligence agencies to get more information together. You know, on the flip side, the Chinese government is um accusing the u.s of hiding something so um you know it, it would just it would be nice if there's less finger pointing and we could just get to the bottom of what happened that would be swell that would be but, swell uh, that would be swell but we'll see where things go but yeah. Uh, yeah no normalcy is uh starting to return i as i mentioned at the start i had lunch with our colleague marianne cook today and uh a lunch, and a, a networking lunch and a representative from one of our fine sponsors finnegan so uh it's great to sit outside in the shade wow Share salad. Well, we didn't share a salad. We each had our own salads, but it was good to get up. All right. Let's move into number four on the new Marcus Newsmakers. Number four on the list. We've got a rapid medical uh, raising a $50 million to support its uh, minimally invasive uh, stroke treatments. But, uh, you know, this this money raise comes on the heels of uh, FDA clearing the company's uh, Tiger Trever revascularization device to uh, to treat uh, ischematic stroke. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it includes intelligent control, like to, to help the neurointerventionalists uh, better remove blood clots, restore blood to flow to the, uh, to the brain. So, I mean, this is just uh, interesting technology. Uh, FDA cleared now and, you know, the company's now, uh, you know, raised uh, $50 million to, uh, like, you know, work on, uh, you know, commercializing it. All right. Let us move on to number three. You know, number three on the list, we've got, uh, you know, iRhythm. Uh, they ah. want, yeah, iRhythm's on the on the list this time. And they've, uh, you know, they've won an FDA, FDA clearances for like uh, a next-gen Zio monitor. Also won a clearance for uh, some updated uh, artificial intelligence capabilities uh, with their uh, with their Zio system, which is, you know, kind of this uh, cardiac monitoring patch that defect, detects AFib kind of like a, you know, it's supposed to be like a, a much better thing than the uh, traditional holder monitors that have been used in the past. So, you know, like a- able to, you know, track, uh, you know, people for a longer period of time, hopefully, uh, you know, figure out better whether people have, um, you know, have any AFib problems. So, yeah, this is, this is neat. They got a clearance to, uh, you know, for some, you know, next gen technology. We, of course, had Mike Coyle, the CEO on the podcast a few weeks ago. And uh, iRhythm sort of represents the uh, the new dilemma for medtech. We talked about it with Josh Macau, our, our guest on the podcast today. About ten years ago, the FDA was the real hurdle. Now the FDA seems more amenable, but it's reimbursement that's becoming the real challenge, and that's what iRhythm is facing as well. So uh, yeah, exactly. They've got yeah. like the here they are with getting an FDA clearance, but they're you know wrangling with a, a regional uh, Medicare administrator right now over pricing, and that that pricing just. Thing doesn't just affect them, but some other companies too that you know are are, are active in this space. Uh, so, so yeah, it's not it's not just like getting the regulatory regulatory approval these these days. It's trying to get uh get the stuff paid for. Hey, device talkers! On June eighth, we're going to have a device talks Tuesdays presentation by Elcom. I've got a quick uh, conversation with Mike Goglia. Mike's the regional market manager in the Americas for Elkham Silicones. And the topic of the conversation is solving medtech's challenges using medical grade silicone. So I asked Mike what the webinar will look like. Let's listen. The way we have the webinar broken out, it'll be three separate sections that discuss real case studies that that are real life situations that occurred with our customers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we truly try to have a consultative approach when we we deal with our customer base. You know, they might be looking for one solution, but uh, we we could have other options to offer them. Uh, So the first case study 
we'll go into would be uh, it's it's around a global company that we we have a relationship with that was looking to transfer technologies to another site. Uh, so we were able to to tweak our formulations and uh, actually make a better product for them in the end that that worked in both of their locations. Uh, the second one was a, a customer had come to us with a problem uh, looking for a better adhesive for one of their medical devices. Uh, they were leaning in one direction, and uh, we actually steered them in another direction that that fit within their current manufacturing process mm-hmm. and actually gave them a, a much faster cure time and much faster cycle time within their processing. And then the, the last bit we'll go into is uh, more of an example about how we deal with our customers on the regulatory side with a medical device. Now, obviously, it's an ever-changing environment for our customer base, and we try to have expertise throughout the, the different zones we deal in, whether it be you know, the Americas, uh, Asia-Pac, or Europe. And uh, you know, we have toxicologists on staff. We have regulatory personnel on staff. Okay, it's going to be a great conversation. Join us on June 8th at 11 a.m. It's going to be a special time, 11 a.m. on June 8th. Go to devicetalks.com to register. Martha Ha and John DeChapel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Hi, Tom. Martha, you're a, a first-time visitor. John, you are uh, our first returning guest to the Medtronic Talks podcast. I think if you come on a third time, I have to get you a Screen Actors Guild card or something. Uh, I'm sure the unions will get involved, <laughs> but uh, it's great to have you back. Uh, John, we covered your background uh, when you were on our, uh, our, our first podcast. So, Martha, I'm going to focus on you for a few minutes. Tell us a bit about uh, how you came to be where you are at Medtronic, your chief privacy officer. A little later, I'd love to learn exactly what you focus on, but take us way back. What's your... Uh, What's your background? So I was born, Tom, uh, in Korea, actually, in Seoul, Korea. And my family moved to uh, the United States, to the Chicagoland area, when I was less than a year old. And as I was, um, actually, as I was thinking about my history and making notes for this podcast, I started thinking back to my childhood. um, And I hope this is relevant, because I was trying to remember specific instances of discrimination and racism that I may have faced growing up as as a young Asian female uh, on the streets of Chicago. And I remembered a fair amount of name calling. But then as I actually just sat with it, uh, I remembered being taunted as a child. I remember Mm. kids, you know, pulling their eyes into little slits and then laughing at me and pointing at me. Uh, One of the boys, actually, when I was in uh, uh, elementary school, challenged me to a fight. So, yeah. And for any real any reason other than you being you or I, I guess I was intimidating. I don't know. Maybe I look different or um, and for those of you who can't see me, I, I'm actually about five to 110. And uh, I was even smaller back then. So uh, luckily we didn't fight. So that all ended up. <laughs> but then I remember this one incident very clearly of going to a department store with my mom. And um, I remember these two boys following me as we went from department to department and finally, when I was cornered, they they started calling me names. Um, they started teasing me and to the point where I literally um, shrunk down to the ground and I hid underneath some clothes and under a rack of clothes. And I just I wanted to become invisible. I never told my mom or dad about this. I felt shame. Mm-hmm. I felt embarrassed. I felt helpless. Um and then from there, as I grew up, I guess I, I feel like there was less blatant racism and discrimination, but I'm also thinking that maybe I just became numb to it. Right. And I just started to ignore it. Anyway, fast forward, I graduated from law school. I wonder, before you get into that, I, I do want to, because I, I find myself going back to my own childhood, not, not, I mean, I was taunted for other reasons, but racially growing up in the 70s and the 80s, you kind of look at things that you said or just thoughts that you had and, and how they compare to today. Uh, and it really requires you to stop and really think and really hold it up to the light and see, compare one to the other. Do you, did you carry these memories with you in an active way through the years or are you sort of unpacking them now? Um, I, I'm unpacking a lot of the a lot of the really what I consider more nasty and blatant racism. I do remember just the teasing and some of the name calling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of simple and I can carry that with me. Um, and I and I never have forgotten that, but I just do what I have to to move past it. Um, sure. And I think now more than ever, especially as the leader of the Asian um, Employee Resource Group at Medtronic, it's really time for me to bring those to the light and to the surface. 
and talk sure. about it because I think that's important, not just for myself, but also for the other Asian employees. And it's time to speak up and it's time to speak out. So no, I think we all should be doing that, but, but please. So you, you moved into, to, to, you were getting into your, your move to law school. Yeah. Um, actually I had graduated from law school and worked. Um, I in missed law that entirely. Wow. Okay. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, I remember it. I remember it. So I graduated from law school, started working in law firms for about 10 years. And then I went in-house and I went in-house um, in a healthcare company. And I started to move up the ranks. And I thought that I was moving up the ranks because I worked hard, because that's what my mom and dad said. You work hard, keep your head down, and people will notice you. Well, some people did, and it was okay for a while. And then nobody noticed me. Um, and so really, the way I got to rise in, in the ranks uh, to the executive level is really from some lucky breaks and from mm -hmm. people actually extending a hand to me saying, you got to get pulled up right now. So I had luckily some great mentors and sponsors who brought me up with them. How did you choose healthcare or, or did, did you just happen to, did healthcare happen to choose you? Did you, did you consciously choose a career in healthcare? I did not actually mm -hmm. healthcare chose me and it just mm -hmm. happened to be a good company. Um, it happened to be not far from my house um, and I, and I thought, Hey, I can do this. It's a good cause. Um, and so I, it just, it worked out that way. Perfect. Great. So I joined Medtronic about five years ago, um, again, staying in healthcare and I became the leader of the Asian ERG uh, about 18 months ago. And I've always been a supporter of IND inclusion and diversity, um, and mentoring and supporting other Asians and females and Asian females, but I never really knew how or whether I could make a difference. I remember, remember that I became numb to my own racism and microaggressions against myself. But so the events of the last 12 months have really woken me up. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it's time now to take a stand. It's time to find my voice, if not for myself, for all my other fellow Asian colleagues, my friends, the community. Um, it's time and I'm ready. And so here I am speaking up and speaking out. Great. Now, good for you. And, and I, I, uh, John, I want to bring you into the conversation in a moment. But Martha, do you you say the the the, the event of the last twelve months? Uh, do you specifically have a a moment or an event where you said enough is enough, or was it sort of a cumulative building? Um, I did have a moment when enough is enough, um, and that was actually just this March. Um, I started to I started to wake up a little bit more clearly over the the course of the pandemic as we saw the rise in anti-Asian racism and violence uh, escalate. But then uh, the Atlanta murders back in March of the six Asian women. Um, I, and then I started to watch very, very disturbing uh, violent attacks against mostly elderly Asian uh, mm -hmm. men and women. And then I started thinking about my parents who are in their eighties. Um, and it just, it literally broke my heart. So. Those videos were, were, immensely troubling um we've all, we all seen them and it just boggles the mind that that they can happen that in that no one was helping so i i can understand that completely um wow okay well we want to get into the, the work being done Medtronic, but i think john i would love to to bring you into the conversation just maybe i'm not sure who to speak to the, the program but i think though this would be a good time to to talk about the, the group you're involved with in pro, at Medtronic and, and what you're trying to do. And, and maybe, John, you can sort of start, start that and explain how, what, your, what perspective you're bringing to this uh, important discussion. Sure. Thanks, Tom. Um, I'm still thinking about what Martha just said about how she was, as a junior executive, she wasn't recognized for her performance and she ultimately had to depend on, on some people to give her a hand up and, how unfortunate is that? Because we should all be recognized for our performance and, and not necessarily need someone to go out of their way uh, to help us. But that is our, our reality. So, um, so I've tried to do my part. Uh, I've recently had the honor of participating in a development program that we have for mid-level Asian women executives in our, our company and where we have a, a number of, of mentor mentee sessions and having an appreciation of some of the challenges that our Asian workforce has and speaking to them very directly and very frankly uh, with my mentee um, has, has been really rewarding 
for me. Um, I, I could share with you some of the things that we spoke about. If you think that'd be valuable, uh, sure. Let's 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 uh, let's cover a few of those things now. Some of the things um, that we spoke of um, included the importance of not just completing your assignments, but taking it a step farther and having the confidence to look to influence the company's decision-making. And we spoke about how do you do that? We also spoke about uh, the importance of getting out of the office and going to see customers and then bringing that back to the, the conference room, if you will, and being the voice of, of the customer. So shaking things up and getting out of the usual role um, is something that, that some of our Asian employees uh, may uh, may struggle with. And so encouraging her to do these things was, was, was rather eye-opening. And hopefully that will help her break through, if you will, uh, the glass ceiling. And we know that that glass ceiling exists because we've seen the studies that show that, that amongst U.S. white-collar professionals, that Asians are the least likely to go from individual contributor to the managerial ranks. So having some an opportunity to talk about kind of specific ways of, of moving up, how you can be very intentional, maybe even double down on the intentionality of your career development by talking to your manager about succession planning and are you named in their succession plan are, are important for anyone, but probably doubly important for, for our Asian American uh, employees. All right, once again, if you'd like to hear the rest of that interview, including John's personal connection to this issue, go to devicetalks.com. You can find the Medtronic Talks podcast there or subscribe on any podcast channel, or you can go to the Medtronics.com website and find that they're in this newsroom. So, so make sure you check that out. All right, let us move on to number... Oh, no. Yes, I know. Come on, Chris. It's getting a lot of a lot of clicks on Mass Device. It's, people just can't get enough of the uh, the Elizabeth Holmes uh, Theranos trial. Uh, but uh, you know, there there were some big developments though. Uh, you know, in in recent days, because the uh, the judge sorted through all of the motions that were you know flying back and forth over what evidence to include in the trial. So you know, they're they're finally on on May twenty second a. Uh, Hundred page order landed that, that went through all this stuff and cleared it up for the you know the you know before the August thirty first uh, trial starts. So I mean, so like you know some of the um, some of the high points included that uh, you know there there will be some discussion about uh, you know like her lavish lifestyle though the uh, judge said no brand names that could bias the jurors against uh, against her because they could uh, if you were talking about. You know, like her having Gucci bags or or whatever mm-hmm. that would uh that wouldn't be good. But you can definitely talk about how she was enjoying a, a lifestyle that you'd get as a, a Silicon Valley CEO when you're trying to like establish some kind of motive for you know why all this uh, this fraud took place uh, with uh, with Theranos. Um, you know, it was interesting too. The prosecutors all along have been kind of trying to suggest that uh, she was behind destroying this laboratory information city system database and uh you know the uh the judge uh said that you know they're he, he didn't see any direct evidence and in, in what they're presenting so they can't make that case during the trial that you know and on the flip side she can't fault the uh, government for the database being lost so uh you know if she does that she opens up a question of fact in the, in the trial and then like it's fair game the prosecutors can start trying to suggest that you know she you know like something happened with Theranos management and the destruction of it. So that's all. It's very interesting. We'll see. But anyway, it'll be it'll be quite. It looks like it's shaping out to be quite a trial. Do we know if this is going to be a Zoom trial or if this is going to be an old fashioned in person only trial? I don't. You know, I know one of the big one of the reasons why they delayed it. Um, you know, other than the fact like they found out she's you know, there's a pregnancy now, but um, mm-hmm. you know, she's expecting. But uh, you know, also like during the pandemic, I mean, some of the sure. um, she had a lot of like older investors like elder statesmen who invested in Theranos, like people like Henry Kissinger. And, you know, it's like, uh, it'd be very hard to do a Zoom testimony with them, but you don't really want them coming into a courtroom during a pandemic. So Rupert Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's on the witness list. Wow. Last time I checked. He's, 
If I didn't know you the way I do, Chris Newmarker, I, I would think you keep putting this in the list so you can justify a trip to uh, to the West Coast to cover this trial for yourself. Is that, is that what's going on? Oh, you know, we do have, I mean, Brian Bunt's our farm editors and he lives outside of San Francisco, maybe. Uh, I kind of I tease Brian. Maybe he should go. He might have to stop by a few times. We'll see. If we're getting this many clicks, then uh, I then I think yeah, we got to set we got to set them up there with a camera, uh, you know, a little bit. We can have uh, mass device live on the scene. Yeah, exactly. There we go. We got to like uh, have some live coverage of this. It'll be it'll be. I mean, it's definitely the most high pri- profile trial that Medtech has seen ever. I, I don't know, or, yeah, for sure. Heck, there was a podcast yeah. built around it, so you know you know it had there to be a go. big yeah, deal. There's a podcast. I mean. Is this your idea? Are you going to start a Theranos podcast, Tom? Are we going to start? I mean, I think I think they've gone to the bottom of a lot of what happened around that at this point. Yeah, yeah I think that I think they pretty much answered many of the questions. So, uh, but maybe maybe I'll do a podcast about the Theranos podcast. Go. That would be great. <laughs> People would love that. <laughs> Number one on the new Marcus Newsmaker. Number one on the list, uh, just hot off the presses. Um, are there? Even though there aren't any presses anymore, but still, it's it's Thursday, and you know Medtronic uh, fourth quarter results are out, and uh, I I was just looking over the earnings transcript, and uh, in there, uh, CEO Jeff Martha was uh, told analysts uh, that uh, the uh, company's Hugo robot just got a investigational device exemption approval from uh, FDA, so this lets them uh, start uh, studying this robot in the U.S. with the uh, commencement of a. Uh, you know, trial uh, for uh, urologic procedures, but this is like a like a big thing. This is like uh, Medtronic's big uh, play to compete with Intuitive Surgical and in the you know in the um, soft tissue robotic surgery space. So, you know, some uh, some big news for Medtronic on the surgical robot front, and uh, you know, another thing he. Um, that, you know, Martha kind of like, you know, mentioned that I, I thought was really interesting was um, that they're expecting to have uh, renal denervation trial results uh, later this year, likely at the TCT conference in November. And uh, Martha said that he thought that those results are, quote unquote, likely to be one of the most highly anticipated events in medtech this year. I mean, renal denervation had a big setback as mm-hmm. a hypertension treatment about half a decade ago because... You know, Medtronic did, had a study that didn't meet, you know, endpoints, but, you know, since then they, you know, they went back, they, you know, started, uh, you know, sorting through factors that had, you know, played a role in that, uh, you know, trial and, you know, inc- including like, you know, like, you know, trying to clear up confounding factors such as differing medication regimens and whatnot, you know, patient compliance and yeah, they're back and, you know, gosh, if this uh, study goes really well, I mean, like, you know, renal denervation can really be back as like, like kind of like this like next big thing for for med tech the idea that i mean blood high blood pressure is so hard for some people to control if, if you really could like you know kind of zap some of these nerves uh leading to the kidneys to control regulate blood pressure i mean that would be um very useful and and a huge market sure. no, I've, I've already shared my enthusiasm for renal innovation and i'm certainly anticipating those results highly and the ide affords medtronic the opportunity to begin its human clinical trials Correct. IDE mean, ID means you can ship out devices to study the study it. Exactly. All right. Well, great news. Well, great job, Chris Newmarker. It's an excellent list as always. Yeah, very good. Yeah, a lot of lot of news going on. Like so much for a slow uh, slow summertime so far. Well, Josh Macauer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to connect with you again. We did a podcast on a different podcast a couple of years ago, and I thought of it this morning. There was an article in the Globe about WPI creating a, a prosthetic hand for a young woman who was in an accident reminded me that your and I always ask this question to people coming on the podcast. I asked it then I'll ask it now. What was your, I remember your inspiration for getting into med tech. It was uh, the $6 million man. Exactly. <laughs> you were right. Yeah. So tell it. And again, that reminded me, this article reminded me of that. And uh, just tell us what was it? I mean, that inspired everybody, but what was it that you saw that said, hey, you know what? That might be a career for me. I don't want to be the superhero. I want to be Oscar Madison. Oscar Madison. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be the guy behind the gun. I'm going to show you something that I've never shared publicly in a podcast. So this is going to be fun. So this is a notebook from when I was like probably seven years old or something like that. Whoa. Being inspired by, you know, the, the six million dollar man and i've wrote all my ideas in this notebook that's the lungs see 
So that's awesome. <laughs> all the things that you could do, like here's look, here's the things that you could do. You could stimulate the heart with electricity. You were how old? I was like seven. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, and then then I have all my ideas of the, the super things that people, you know, what you could do to the body, and like if you stimulated various. So you know, that was my inspiration, and I mean, it's I my parents had held on to this notebook and yeah, like there's my network of how everything's connected in the body. And you know, it's like, you know, it shows you that like how, how impactful those kinds of things could be for kids, you know, like that inspired my whole career. Like just the, the I was totally fascinated with the idea that I can't even spell right here. And so it's the brain with electrodes in the brain. I mean, it's just like, you know, so cool. Like I just dreamed about it. Like, wow, what could you do to improve health and people, you know, the bionic man, make people better, like superpowers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so that's, that's where it started. That's right? outstanding. My it, first invention notebook right here. This is, is a 29 cent, <laughs> 29 cent yellow paper <laughs> notebook that would fit right. in your back pocket of your jeans. Did you remember that you had done that or were you 20 something? Yes. I need to go to Medtronic and say, Hey, I, I have the notebooks. I, I invented everything first. <laughs> you gotta get you gotta get that over to Wilson Sincini and get some court cases going. I think exactly. <laughs> right there. It's all it's all been invented, you know. <laughs> I want that founder stock. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That and this is the weakness of a podcast, not be able to show people that. But again, it's yeah, worn yeah. worn yellow notebook, the kind of small one you would have found in your back pocket or put in your back pocket. <laughs> and it's got all these great drawings that, that yeah. uh, young Josh did. And uh, I'll correct myself, Oscar Goldman, not Oscar Madison. That Oscar Madison, of course, was the odd couple. Oscar Goldman was from Six Million Dollar Man. So before anyone shuts the podcast off and writes me a nasty email, well, that uh, that backs up your story. Then that's not just a uh, that's not just a tale. So you went into the engineering field. Just walk us through your your, your path to where yeah, sure. you currently are. The thumbnail, you know, um, I um, got a mechanical engineering sort of bio- biomedical and uh, emphasis from MIT, working on and worked on electrodes that attach to nerves and stuff like that is my thesis at MIT. And, um, but instead of pursuing biomedical engineering pathway, I wanted to do traditional medicine because I wanted to understand how doctors think. And Mm -hmm. really I wanted to get closer to patient care and biomedical engineering seemed like more theoretical and more, you know, uh, analytical. And I wanted to get my hands dirty. I want to really understand how patients are treated and real disease. So I went to medical school at NYU and I got that, you know, and that was, you know, I was right in the middle of the AIDS crisis. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And then um, as I began to, you know, finish my training at NYU, that's where I was like, you know, I don't know if I want to go practice medicine. I really want to build technologies for doctors to was, use. Was that ever a possibility? Was it yeah. a possible path? Yeah, it was. I wish I had role models like Tom Fogarty or maybe Paul Yock or people like that in, in the East Coast. I didn't even know those names, really. I didn't have anybody who was doing both. And I, all I saw was doctors who were immersed and totally busy and had no time to do anything else other than training patients. And I was like, you know what? I like the patient care piece. It's actually really rewarding and fulfilling, but I wanted to get involved in innovation sooner. So I thought that by going to a company, I could be a part of a product development effort that would develop new technology for treating disease. And that's what I wanted to do. So that's why I went into industry and I went to Pfizer uh, medical devices at the time. Pfizer had a big $2 billion medical device business at the time, which comprised of, you know, orthopedic business, cardiology business, Mm -hmm. lasers, you know, all sorts of things, urology. And uh, so it was a great overview and got involved in some really interesting projects. And that's where I started this interest in sort of the, the, the process of innovation. And uh, I was uh, asked to investigate why when we acquire, Pfizer would acquire these little startups that were very innovative and then they'd not create new, new exciting things anymore. Everything that they would do after that would be somewhat incremental. And Hank McKinnell, who was the CFO at the time, who later became the CEO of Pfizer, asked me to go find this out. And I discovered that what happens with businesses, once they find their success, they start to define themselves on the basis of the technology rather than the need that they're solving. So that uh, led me to this thesis that 
if you stay focused on the need and you stay focused on the customer, you will find your way to the next big innovative ideas. And if you just stay fixated, like we're a catheter company, we're a laser company, we're a implant company. And so that becomes uh, much more limiting and everything becomes much more incremental. And, and so he said, okay, go prove it. And I created a little group that we call Fresh Tech to prove the methodology could work. We, mm-hmm. we did that ser- series of times and produced a number of interesting new product development efforts within medical devices. And then after, you know, I went to Columbia Business School in the executive program, came back, you know, stayed with Pfizer through that and, and two years after. And by then I was sort of like, you know what, I, I am frustrated with the big company. A lot of our ideas sort of struggled to get traction because of not invented here and a lot of politics. And I was like, you know what, I, I need to go do this outside of a big company because it's too frustrating. That's when I became an entrepreneur in 1995. I teamed up with NEA and John Nira and mm-hmm. Bob Anderson, who is the former uh, you know, founder of Valley Lab. And we created uh, ExploreMed as a medical device incubator back then. And still to this day, uh, creating companies out of ExploreMed. And we produced uh, you know, some big exits like um, Neotract and Clarent and Willow and uh, Moximed and some other, you know, interesting technology. We have a new one that's in the aesthetic space um, that's codenamed NC8, sort of stealth at the moment. But mm-hmm. so we're still creating companies there. And NEA has been my partner since 1995. And, you know, 15 or 16 years ago, I joined as a venture partner part-time, just sort of advising. And then six years ago as a general partner. And that's when I sort of switched to do a lot more investing. And, and that's what I've been doing for the last six years. Um, simultaneously, about 20 years ago, uh, Paul Yock and I co-founded yeah. the Biodesign Program Let's at get Stanford. In, yeah. Let's get into that. Yeah. So you, you went to MIT, you went to New York University, went to Columbia, yeah. and then you go to the West Coast. Um, I just wanted to ask about the, the, the medical degree. Uh, do, yeah. do you, how... Is that if you were giving advice to someone today who said, you know, I really would like to get into biomed, but I think yeah. it would help me a lot if I get my MD. Is that still necessary today? Yeah, no, nothing is necessary mm-hmm. like, because I have a lot of engineers that I work with who are not MDs, who are as salient in heart valves or implantable technology as any doc that would walk into the room. So they, you can become an expert without having to be a doctor. The, the thing that I really appreciate about the medical degree is it gave me an understanding of patient care and, and really a deep, deep understanding of physiology. And there's some amazing experiences that you know, both business school and medical school provided that, you know, just being able to go do that actually really enriched me. Is it necessary? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. But like I have a three-dimensional understanding of all of the elements and layers and structural components of the human body, which really gives me a rich um, platform upon which to do inventing, you know? So like I can visualize in my mind um, when we're approaching like sort of how do we solve this sort of whatever mechanical problem. And a lot of, as you probably know, a lot of my, you know, contributions on the, on the innovation and inventing side are mechanical solutions to things. You know, Mm -hmm. I just sort of think mechanically that's sort of what I'm drawn to and being able to understand the, the machine of the body and the layers and the interconnectivity of it and the structural integrity and the viscoelastic properties of the tissues. Cause I felt them in all my, my hands, you know, yeah. and done dissections gives me a really strong foundation when we start inventing and say, we're going to go do this. And like, I, I can imagine the tension on this, you know, like of the structures as you push them away and what kind of uh, environment that we're penetrating and the blood vessels and all that kind of stuff. It's all sort of in my head. So it really, it helps me as an inventor. Is it necessary? I don't think so, mm-hmm. but it definitely helps. Do you have that same vision of, of inventing and innovating? Because you, you, you mentioned you went to the West Coast. 
you created, ex co-created ExploreMed, and then we'll get to talk more about Stanford Biodesign later, co-created Stanford Biodesign. I mean, you were really giving almost, I don't know, Matt, Matt, like you're either a good entrepreneur, you had the how do you don't, but there was no way to, to do it, but you were creating, helping to create a way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when I was in uh, engineering school, like, uh, I mean, the bottom line is, I can't understand anything that's complex. <laughs> Actually, for me to understand it, I just have to break it down into like step one, you know, uh, well, put your shoes on, step two, walk out of your room. You know I mean? So, you know, it's like, like I have to think of things like, sound like my 12 year old. Like but... you know? <laughs> and, um, and even when I was like a, T a TA or, a T you know, like I TA uh, system dynamics, in uh, at MIT and I broke it all down into steps. Like for me, it was just like, what are the steps? And so I naturally approach things in a system in sort of system thinking, which is there's a process, you know, there's like a one box and an arrow and there's another box and you know, what are the steps and try to try to abstract it a little bit and say, step away from it. Like what, how would I approach this? And let me break that. And as I saw, I saw problems that way too, just sort of like, okay, you got this big thing, and it's disease, what's going on, and can we think of the steps? Um, so it's just a natural way I approach things, mostly because I can't understand anything that's too complex. So I, I need to break it down into simple steps. And, and what's nice about that is once you do that, it's easy to communicate and teach others to do the same thing. So it helps, it helps me. And if I can explain it in simple steps to you, you can do it. So does Stanford Biodesign happen without ExploreMed? Like, did ExploreMed kind of give you the, oh, we've kind of figured it out. Now we can teach it to other people. What I would say is that my experience at Pfizer Fresh Tech, where we first pioneered these things and we iterated. Josh is reaching back into his bookcase again. Let's see what else, what other treasure trove he pulls out. This is from 1994. Uh, it's American Medical it's Systems. It's American a Medical Systems, where we, which was a Pfizer division at the time. Mm -hmm. And we used the fresh tech, now called the biodesign process, to create new ideas in urology for AMS. And the steps are simple and they have not changed. Wow, really? Yeah. Um, they're pretty much the same steps of need finding, need specification, inventing to a need spec, then screening that those ideas against the need criteria for the ones that work the best. And is that a formula for innovating in any industry or is that only work yes. in biomed? Nope. Any industry. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to solve a problem, I think if you're an artist creating art, you don't use uh, that method. But if you're trying to solve problems, this is the way to do it. You know, I mean, and, and believe it or not, this is controversial in some circles here in the Valley. Oh, really? I won't mention any big company names that, you know, are in my backyard here. But <laughs> some of them believe that you just make stuff, throw it out there. And if people like it, people like it. And, you know, and it's a winner. And if people don't like it, then, you know, just kill it. That's really hard to do in... Um, in medical yeah. and in, you know, you can't, you can't just say, Hey, we're going to try this therapy. What's it good for? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Let's see how it works. Let's see. Yeah. Would you like to take this pill? Yeah. You know, it's not going to happen. And so you have to be much more thoughtful and your risks and expense of getting to the point of even testing it is so expensive that having a thoughtful approach towards, you know, identifying needs and screening them is the right, the right way. But I do believe it is applicable to any industry any opportunity, if you do need finding first, understand your stakeholders, understand the need parameters that you need to solve and use that as a basis for starting the inventing process, then you have a better chance of being successful than those people just sort of locked away in a garage coming up with great ideas that may or may not actually solve a problem. So, so did you and Paul create, co-create Stanford Biodesign to implement, implement those lessons, to teach those to others? Yes. And- how has it worked in your opinion? Has it changed at all? Have you, yeah. have you had to update that, that philosophy from what you've seen? What was the, what's the experience been like? And we yeah. can talk a bit about your taking it over again for Paul in a bit. Explorer Med was an opportunity to do it in an incubator that had some specific goals, which were really NEA's goals for what, what types of technologies they wanted to back and how big and what, you know, what's how significant. So that was like a, 
the types of things that we would pursue was pretty much coned down to the things that would fit NEA's investment practice. When we went to Stanford, the it blew open wide the doors of what would be, I mean, you could have an outcome of, of the biodesign process to be a new research pr- project. It didn't have to be a company. It didn't have to be a product. It could just be, hey, we really understand this problem now. Now let's do some basic research and figure it out. So it could be anything from a new product or technology or drug or something all the way over to a interesting new avenue of research where you now really understand what you need to solve and let's understand more about the system so we can invent to it. So that though it's really opened it all up. And it has been really impactful a number of layers. First of all, we've graduated like 185 fellows mm-hmm. who are the folks that go through the intense program. I don't know what it's tens of thousands of students have gone through the biodesign training at uh, Stanford in the graduate classes. And then globally, our textbook is has been picked up across the world. Literally, universities across the United States and the world use our textbook to train students on innovating in, in medical technology. So the, the ideas, they're simple, mm-hmm. they're really cool, but they've been transferable across many cultures. It's cool. Do you have yeah. any kind of direct affiliation with them or do they just buy the textbook and kind of take it from there? I think there's about eight with eight programs with a direct affiliation okay. where we collaborated with them on a faculty or resources basis. And I'm going to guess like a hundred that just use our textbook and, you know, do, do so to their own, their own thing. So what impact has that had on biomedical innovation? Are you seeing a corresponding surge because there's so many people who are now skilled in the, the art or the science of creating new medical devices? I mean, it's hard. I haven't measured it. Yeah. Uh, interesting to measure. Maybe once I get into Stanford, I'll try to think about how do we actually measure the actual impact of it. But I do constantly come across founders and and students and you know of of the biodesign teachings, whether they got it at Stanford or elsewhere, that sort of identify the textbook as being really useful for them. I think it would be a very interesting survey at some point to do. Um, it would be. I haven't I, done it. I mean, I do. I do think, and maybe just we're more connected now, but I do see a lot of innovative companies or ideas coming from somewhere other than the big three pockets, West coast, Minnesota, Massachusetts, whether they have the infrastructure or the ecosystem to support them and to be companies is a different story, but innovation is happening in a lot of different places. um, As a result, how has the the venture world kind of changed over the, the, that time? I mean, you, you work closely and still do, you're still working with NEA, but yeah. it's it's a lot different than it was when you started Stanford Biodesign. Has it is it better than it was? Is it worse than it was? Uh, I don't want to say better or worse. More supportive, less supportive. We've always had a really great support from the venture community for biodesign. Mm-hmm. So that's you know that's been a fundamental thread of support. But with respect to the venture community itself, I mean, you know, we've waxed and waned. Um, you know, devices had, you know, had a heyday and then there was the global financial crisis and the FDA, you know, crisis. And then uh, that wiped out a number of VCs. And then little by little, the early stage investing and, and device investing has been coming back. And now it's, I think it's really coming back. I mean, it's look, we, we've seen the greatest number of early stage medical device companies go public, I think ever. That's exciting because that means that there's liquidity for investors, they're being rewarded for investing in med tech and they wanna put more money to work and and the valuations are good and the, and the companies are good and they're holding their value and it's a really good time. And that's driving, that will drive if it hasn't already um, more M&A at better prices for innovators and maybe it'll drive M&A earlier, Mm -hmm. which is also a big component of a healthy ecosystem. So I think from a lot of perspectives, the med tech ecosystem, starting with, you know, FDA um, reform that I think really started to get some real traction under Jeff Shuren's leadership after 2012 uh, and the, you know, the Innovation Act that was passed. I think all that stuff coalesced to drive the the real value that we're seeing today uh, in med tech. So I think 
we're in an upswing. Mm-hmm. MedTech is is definitely delivering on returns, delivering on value for patients, and uh, and you're seeing a lot of people enter the field. So it's nice to see a lot of young people. I remember there was a period of time where you look across an audience of med tech uh, executives and there's a lot of gray hair in the audience. And I think it's nice to see younger people entering the field with a lot of enthusiasm and ideas. So I used to be one of the younger people in the audience. I remember back in the day, <laughs> no more. Let's, let's, let's talk about the FDA just a bit. Uh, Cause you did. And, and uh, we talked with Kwame Elmer uh, from UCLA, uh, revisiting your study or your survey of the FDA uh, that was done 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago. Why did you put, talk a bit about that study? Why did you put it together and how would you define the impact that it had? Yeah. Um, well, look at the time, if you, if, Folks aren't listening. Remember, 2008 was a tough time for everyone, but really tough for medtech. We had the perfect storm of issues. We had the global financial crisis, which was devastating. At the same, so access to capital was difficult. But what made it worse was as investors started to consider, well, where am I going to put my money now? We we kept on having come back to our investors and say, I know we said that we were going to be a 510k, but the FDA just decided to PMA. Oh, and by the way, they're not being clear as to what the objectives are for the study. No, in fact, we can't get a study approved because the reviewers, you know, they're not getting back to us, and there's delays, and they're turning over, mm-hmm. and all that stuff that was going on at the time was a true disaster for innovation and for patients, and um, and we were in, you know, offices in Washington at both sides of the aisle and the White House and saying, you know, this is a big problem. And what we heard back was you guys are whining a lot, but I, we have an equally loud group over here whining that, oh, it's too easy on you. You know, the FDA's let you get away with all sorts of stuff. Your devices are dangerous. You know, what's this 510K thing? It sounds like a free pass. You know, they just didn't understand mm-hmm. what, uh, what the real truth was. And finally, I will say it was Anna Eshoo, um, in a meeting that we had with her. She just sort of, in a very direct way, said, you know, guys, I don't want to hear any more about this unless you bring some data. Bring some data. I, I know, I'm not listening to whining anymore. I hear you don't like it. I hear, you know, bring some data and we'll have a discussion. But until you have data, I don't, I, you know, your, your opinion is as good as the next person who comes in who's on the other side of the issue. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a very, very valuable input. And so you say, well, okay, uh, let's go get the data. And, um, you know, I had just sold a Clarent and felt like I had achieved some degree of success. And a lot of my colleagues at the time, because FDA was being very aggressive against companies, people were very afraid. People mm. were afraid to speak out. People were afraid to be named in articles or even to show up uh, at Congress and be named. So... It was like, you know what? I, I was, I've been fortunate. It's time to give back. And I basically stuck my neck out and said, all right, I'll do the study and I'll go to Washington and I'll, and I'll tell the story. And so we basically it was a small group. I mean, it was this medical student and Lyndon N from Stanford and myself basically did this 200 or so medical device study where we asked our colleagues to share things that they wouldn't want to share with anybody. We, we got, precise data as to what they spent over what phase of their development, how long things took with FDA and what their feedback was and how long things took and what it used to take. And and we took a sample of companies that went through earlier and samples that went through later. And we were able to compare how things have gotten worse and how expensive it was. And all that data, we basically brought back for use in the debate. And it was very effective. And interestingly, I found out later that Jeff um, had commissioned a similar study just from the FDA side, which internally validated all of our. Oh, findings. interesting. Yeah, so I think he also knew that this was this needed to be changed, and so you know, while it seemed like you know externally maybe people thought we were adversaries, I think in the end we be, you know became partners and realizing that what we need to do for patients and what we need to do for safety is to have a set of parameters that are predictable and predictability and reasonability and risk benefit or benefit risk as, as part of the equation needs to be there. And a lot of the things that got that signed into law were those innovations that were developed through the partnership with FDA and 
industry and Mark Leahy at MDMA and AdvaMed and, and uh, NVCA all collaborated and the, and the local groups, you know, Life Science Alley and, you know, everybody pulled together for this. And it was a great collective team effort with a lot of people uh, involved and we, we were successful in establishing and really putting the FDA issue. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's much, much better and it's much more productive. And it's, and it's not the review isn't less stringent. It's just the expectations are clearer. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, exactly. I mean, it's still hard. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the bar is high and, you know, it's a little variable depending on which division, which reviewer, there's a lot of variability. That's one of the issues that I think we still have yet to solve. I think there could be some uniformity and some training across the group to make the experience of going through as an applicant more uniform like it is in the patent office. I think it's somewhat uniform there, but we're a, a light years better than the way it was in 2008. And are you uh, collaborating at all or what's your, your, your feelings yeah. about the uh, UCLA sort of redoing this, this, this survey or, or a version of it? You know, they've been very kind. We've been in touch. Um, I've sort of suggested that FDA, you know, redoing the study is more academic mm-hmm. than necessary right now, but that there's other things that I would look at like reimbursement and, you know, like that's, if I were, if you were to poll 200 medical device executives right now and say, what's their biggest challenge? It's reimbursement. Yeah. It's not FDA, actually. Right. You know, some would complain about FDA, and there's still reasons to complain about certain things. But the big issue is how do you get your devices paid? The whole process from coding and coverage and payment is so rigid and difficult and, and opaque. It's a lot like the way FDA was back in 2008. So that's the big issue. And I hope, I hope they'll take my advice and focus more on that than necessarily repeat this extensive study that we did in unregulatory because that's you know it's it would be interesting but but more like hey yeah things really improved you know nice thing to do but i think more impactful would be to say what can we do to demonstrate that a reimbursement needs to be solved to improve patient access and and enhance innovation that's probably where I'd focus. That's a great point. I mean, I, I remember emphasis back in the day and I talked to, to Iverthem recently for the podcast and the energy yeah. is, is very much the same. I know, I know we're taking a lot of your time, get a few more minutes. Just, just, I'm curious what your talk about your role. You've been a, a general partner at NEA for the past five years or so. You're taking over for your co-founder, Paul Yock at Stanford Biodesign. I know there's a lot of excitement around that. What are the next yeah two years look like for you in terms of where you'd be focusing your time and what are your plans for, for Stanford? I'll still have my fingers in my three main pies, which are Stanford, NEA, and ExploraMed. So I'll still be creating new companies through ExploraMed, still part of the NEA team, but I'll, I'm stepping down to, to special partner. So I'm not going to have the fiduciary responsibility or time requirement that a general partner requires, but I'll still be a part of the med device investing team there. But my main full-time effort will be Stanford. And my goals are to maintain the good things that Stanford Biodesign does, trying to advance diversity in, in med tech, undergraduate and graduate student classes, the executive programs that we train executives from major multinational companies, all and the fellowship program and the innovators workbench and all that stuff. We're going to continue all the good stuff. The one new thing that I think that I'm getting a lot of feedback and traction, I'm, I'm on sort of a listening tour at the moment. I haven't started. I start in August, but I think they're getting a lot of good feedback that establishing a thoughtful policy initiative mm-hmm. more in line of what I, a little bit similar to what I did back in 2008 with that study that we published, but more broad. And I, and I'd like to, establish what I'd call a innovation policy initiative that really met a health healthcare innovation policy initiative that really looks at how do the policies that we have at the state and local and sort of federal level impact healthcare innovation. And that would include everything from regulatory reimbursement uh, you know, types of policies all the way through hmm. tax policy and financial policy. And I, I'm interested in asking some of those questions and developing some hopefully thoughtful guidelines and insights that could be used by policymakers to make sure that, you know, that when the next pandemic comes, that 
we have a ready and available set of technologies and innovators ready to respond to the challenge. You oh. know, we just saved the world with medtech medical innovation because of all the investment and that had existed prior to this event coming. Imagine if we were starting from scratch with, you know, RNA vaccines from the get-go, no way. Mm -hmm. We would still be in hell. But the fact that that innovation ecosystem was so thriving and was able to rise to the challenge is actually a credit to policies that were put in place and that we've been living with. So we have a golden goose here. Let's make sure we don't kill it with policies that might inadvertently damage that ability. So that's that's what I'm interested in. Um, that's a it's a new role for for Stanford. I mean, less less uh, academic yeah. and, and more leadership and and uh, yeah. policy. Yeah, I think you know we, we're not going to lobby as a rule against lobbying at the Stanford level. But I think what, what our goal is is to really just you know with an academic overlay. Of right. course, we're going to approach it in a peer reviewed fashion with a lot of collaboration. We're going to do it in in a way that we're going to provide that data and thoughtful analysis, and we'll let um, policymakers and other industry groups take that data and um, use it in hopefully a thoughtful way based on the insights that we're able to provide. That's great. Well, obviously, I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, amplifying MedTech's voice, so uh, I think that'll certainly help. Josh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for uh, for the time and for joining us in the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Really appreciate it. All right. It was great to hear from Josh Mackauer, Chris Newmarker. Now is the time when we beg, beg, beg for social media followers. You begin. You go first. Oh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me uh, on uh, Twitter. Uh, just, you know, Chris Newmarker, uh, you know, just like a new marker. All right. And I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. And uh, please do tag Chris and myself when you share this podcast on your social media channels. We'd love to be part of that conversation. So uh, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Once again, don't forget to subscribe. You can do that on any of the major podcast channels. And you can also, of course, find the Medtronic Talks podcast that we gave you a little snippet of today. Those are on the same channels, Apple, Google, Spotify, you name it, we're out there. So uh, subscribe to both. Be amongst the first to hear them. We have uh, several hundred people listening to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast uh, before we even post it anywhere. So some of you are listening and some of you subscribing, you all should be doing that as well. All right. Once again, that's it, folks. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. Hey, get vaccinated. They're giving out prizes for crying out loud. (laughs) 